Tonebenders, a sound designer's podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tonebenders. I am your host, Tim Muirhead. You can follow the podcast on Twitter via at the Tonebenders. Sitting in as co-host today is Teresa Morrow. Hey, Teresa, how are you doing? Hi, Tim. Doing good. Excellent. Our guests today are Nina Hartstone and John Warhurst. Together, they were the co-supervising sound editors on Bohemian Rhapsody. And together, they were just nominated for an Oscar in sound editing. Holy crap. Congratulations. That is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Nina has past credits as a supervising dialogue editor on Gravity, Everest, The Hours, and Gosford Park, in addition to Bohemian Rhapsody. Welcome, Nina. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. And John Warhurst has been a very busy music editor, working on projects like Les Miserables, One Direction, This Is Us, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks. I actually supervise the sound on uh, Les Miserables and One Direction, but I, I do a lot of music editing and sound editing. Uh, but yeah. Well, IMDb failed me there then, eh? <laughs> you probably got multiple credits, maybe. That's why I saw the wrong one there. But So my brother is 10 years older than me, and he worshipped Queen. And my dad hated Queen. He thought they were a flash in the pan, and there was this constant battle between my brother and my dad about how Queen would never be the Beatles. Queen was nothing. They were no talent hacks. When Live Aid came, it was this moment where my brother could finally prove to my dad that Queen was equal to Paul McCartney because they were both on Live Aid. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. <laughs> with my family, my brother, we all had to sit down in front of the TV and my brother treated it like a... Like a... Religious a, experience. A religious thing. Like we were not allowed to talk. We all had to sit and watch Queen. <laughs> yeah. And it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life at that point. When he started doing the call and response to the crowd, Yeah, like it blew my mind. I'd never seen anything like that before. So this concert is a very uh, important moment in my childhood. So when I heard that this movie was coming out and that there was going to be a 20 minute recreation of that I was like yeah I'll believe it when I see it and then I saw it and I totally believed it right it yes. was you guys did an amazing job it was so perfect and the crowds I think are something that really sold it uh for instance when you're hearing the crowd sing along and I I just want to hear everything you can tell me about how that scene came together and the work you did to make it work so well because it really knocked my socks off what one thing that we talked about a lot uh you, you can go on YouTube and you can watch Queen perform Live Aid. So if we're going to film Live Aid, the full the full set, what what's different about what we're going to do? So we, we'd often sort of discussed about how it had to be this kind of immersive, um, almost hyper-real uh, version of actually being at the concert. And we knew that having the crowd separate to the band was going to be extremely important in being able to kind of envelop the the viewer um, and, and make you feel like you are actually in the crowd, you're part of the crowd. And also the, the the way that they did the visual effects, sometimes you're at the back of the stadium, sometimes you're in the middle of the crowd, sometimes you, you're on stage with the band and then you'll flip back around and you'll be at the side of the of the audience. So, so it's this constant shifting perspective change you know, around the whole stadium. When they shot the concerts, they were, they, they were sort of staged like, proper concerts there was a full pa very powerful pa uh and and it was staged like a like a, a proper concert you know with full full back mix and uh, and the crowd out front so when we sort of heard on the schedule that there was going to be this 600 person crowd we knew that there was a perfect opportunity to record it because 
often when you get to post-production and you say to the supervisor, we'd like to you know, get 600 people together to record them. They kind of, they're a bit against things like that, obviously, because of the, uh, the cost of it. I did it. I did it on another film and there was about, I think I managed to get 40 people and there was a lot of moaning due to the cost of it all. So the 600 was obviously a golden opportunity. They agreed that we could record the crowd between camera setups. And I went around and asked all the, the camera grips if, if, they, if they could set up as quietly as possible. Um, but then came the problem of how to actually record uh, 600 people. Mm. If we play the music at the PA, then we're essentially going to ruin our own recordings. And there's no way we can give out 600 sets of headphones. So the only way to do it really, uh, it was actually inspired by Freddie. You know, in the middle of Live Aid, when he does when he does his Deo, he's, he mm-hmm. does Deo, and the crowd sing back Deo. We thought, well, actually, if we if we played the audience one line through the PA, so he went, all we hear is Radio Gaga, and then the crowd would then sing back, all we hear is Radio Gaga, and then we'd play back the next line, all we hear is. So we created these Pro Tools sessions, we chopped up line by line that had just enough gap in between each line so, so that it would give us back the same pitch and the same rhythm of what they've just heard out the PA. So it would literally go, all we hear is Radio Gaga, the crowd would sing, all we hear is Radio Gaga, all we hear is Radio Gugu, all we hear is Radio And we went through the whole of Live Aid like this, doing this sort of call and response recording. We managed to get about three times through, but I remember we got to the end of the day and, and the, everybody was exhausted. It was a real long day, and it was it was quite uh, it was it was quite cold. So trying to maintain the sort of morale of these people was was also quite difficult. I remember they all just wanted to go home by the end, and really didn't want to sing "We Are the Champions" again. But uh, <laughs> but we managed to keep pushing them and pushing. Them. So that sort of became the the bed of of the large crowd. Uh, we also got lucky in that Fox ran this marketing campaign called PutMeInBohemian.com. Yes. Uh, yeah, and they, they created this app and invited people to sing along to Bohemian Rhapsody. And if you submitted your voice, you had the chance of your voice going into the movie. And we ended up on a conference call about if, if we'd be okay if they sent us all these recordings. My initial worry was how many recordings they were going to send us. Um, they ended up sending us tens and tens of thousands of recordings of Boeing Rhapsody. But the great thing was that they paid for uh, more editors and they paid for extra mixing time as part of this marketing campaign. So we also had a huge amount of coverage on Bohemian Rhapsody because then what we did was we we sort of layered up these 600 recordings that we had over and over again. And, you, you know, using plugins like sort of Altiverb and um, Avox Choir is another one that I like to use, which makes 600 people sound like, you know, uh, 6,000 people. It really sort of spreads spreads out the sound. So using that to, to create the large crowd. So, so that's, that's the 100,000. And then um, discussing with Nina about the best way to sort of make up these perspective changes, we realized we, we had the large crowd. We, we'd got the large crowd. 
we knew that we also needed to have smaller crowds, sort of pockets of crowds, mm -hmm. uh, more like 40, 50 crowds. And then we also needed to have individuals that would match the cut. So then, Nina, I'll let you fill in the next part about the, the medium crowd. Uh, <laughs> we, yeah. Yeah, so we uh, we used our loop group, um, which is supplied by Vanessa from Blend Audio, and uh, she got us like forty willing people. And we decided we decided early on that um, I mean I'm never that much of a fan of recording crowd inside. Obviously, it's a, it's necessary when you're doing a lot of sync stuff for this kind of stuff. I always find when I record loop group outside, they sound so much better. So uh, we booked the outside space at Shefton Studios on the weekend and booked their studio as well. And everything was run out from the studio. We had headphones run out, monitors. Uh, we had eight mics, I think, in the end. We had an LCR at the front. Uh, we did a couple at the rear. We did a very distant one. And we had one on a boom pole as well that was kind of moving around in between the crowd. And we got our crowd up generally in groups of eight so that they could put the headphones on. Sometimes we'd add a few more and told them to just to follow the people who had the <laughs> headphones on. Um, and it was an unusually hot day in the UK. I have to say it's about 30 degrees centigrade, whatever that is in, in American terms. It was very warm. Uh, so everyone was having to sing along to this stuff so I had to stand in front of them and kind of keep them going uh, and particularly you know you see the live aid crowd you can see it in the film you can see it in the original footage they're jumping they are full of enthusiasm they are shouting and singing at the tops of their voices so uh, we kept recording them and made them do that every single time so that was another very tired day of a lot of crowd artists but we went through the same process, uh, we, not so much with the call and the repeat because we did have the headphones, but we would get them to sing along. We did some very long passes. So we got those nice big kind of arcs of enthusiasm as it built up, as it built up through Live Aid uh, up to Champions. So they were just super excited by by the end of it. Um, and then we did some some certain sort of spots, picking up certain areas of songs and where we knew that they were physically jumping, they were physically having to jump so that we could hear it in their voice hmm. um, and just, just get the right kind of energy for, for a stadium crowd who were just watching the best gig of their life. And how did you wrangle all these tracks? Like... It just sounds like you had hundreds and hundreds. We yeah that that well the, or in the case of Bohemian Rhapsody thousands and thousands. <laughs> yeah, there was in Bohemian Rhapsody there were thousands and thousands. We did a premix of Bohemian Rhapsody. We we did we actually did um, like a separate one day premix of all that crowd. But one thing that we discussed uh, there were three types of crowd. What we call the musical crowd. Um, there was what we call the effects crowd. Then there was the group crowd. And so the musical crowd we had sort of three layers. That, that, that was the singing crowd. That was the crowd that, that sings along to all the songs. And also in there, we had the clapping crowd. So uh, again, these three different sizes, you've got the full stadium, you've got the sort of medium around you crowd, and then we've got the individual crowd. And we did the same thing with the effects crowd. So we've got these different layers from large to medium to small crowd. And then we had the, did the same thing with the group crowd. Uh, as we were getting close to getting the final cut of Live Aid, it wasn't the sort of thing where you wanted to cut from shot to shot, so to the back of the stadium, to the front of the stadium. Obviously, that, that would completely jolt you out of the, the whole event. Uh, so we discussed about how all of these different elements of crowd 
would be kind of moving. It's, it's a bit like how the sea would move, you know, in very gentle waves that would lift up and down. So when you arrive, say, to the back of the stadium, uh, the crowd that you want, so, so the larger crowd at the back of the stadium, would sort of lift up gently uh, in terms of sort of mixing. And so it would reach its peak when you arrived at that shot and then it would go back down again on the other side. So you had all these different elements of crowd that would all be sort of lifting up and moving back down again very gently. So as, as the perspectives changed around the stadium, wh whenever you landed on the shot, you would feel you were part of that shot. You would feel you were... Uh, watching the, the concert or involved in the concert from that angle, but you wouldn't notice it arriving. It would be the sort of thing that crept up and, and then went away. We basically had three Pro Tools systems of crowd. Wow. Um, the Queen uh, guys were really good because they had a huge amount of recordings from all of their concerts that they've done around the world. The thing that we also discussed was that, A, we really wanted all the crowd to be Queen crowd. We didn't want it to be sort of like, you know, some sort of uh, crowd from another gig or for another band. We, we really wanted to try and make it all Queen crowd. But also we really wanted it to sort of feel like the size and space that, you know, that, that you that you had as well. So we, we used stadium crowds. In fact, we recycled the live crowd as much as possible. We also had another bit of luck with creating the crowd in that Queen were actually on tour when we were in post-production for the film. And they came to London in July and they played the O2, uh, which is about a 20,000 seat arena. We realized it was a great opportunity. Firstly, um, something with, that we discussed with Paul Massey as well. Paul Massey, the uh, re-recording mixer. So, yes. Yeah. About, yeah, about worldizing the music from all the concerts. So we managed to get a, a two-hour slot before the sound check. And we showed up at the O2 and we played back all the music uh, that you hear in the film, uh, as well as Live Aid, through the Queen PA before there were any sort of audience in the O2. And we played it back at full concert level. And we had sort of 18 microphones in the roof of the O2, and we recorded back all the music. So that meant that we could have sort of clean, clean slap, if you like, a clean sort of worldized uh, recording of the of the the concert so we could add our own reverb instead of using a plug-in or something like that we actually had the real reverb if you like But another good thing that happened then was that chatting to the Queen Engineers, I said that one of the hard things to create is the sound of a single... When you hear an arena or or a, a stadium doing single hand claps, saying, we will rock you, the boom, boom, cha. When you try to create that in Pro Tools and you layer up lots and lots and lots of groups of hand claps to try and create it and use plugins, use reverb, use EQs and things like that, a bit artificial. There's something about it. There's something about the... The reverb of all those hand claps, when you multiply them all together, that starts to sound a bit artifacty. It doesn't sound that great. And so Brian May offered to, in the in the sort of interlude of this concert, to ask the, the twenty thousand people at the O2 if we we could do some clean single hand claps. So you just get the boom boom, and he got them all to do a hand clap, a single hand clap for us. 
Uh, and he did loads of these hand claps, which we could take these sort of 20,000 people and use that as the main bed for our large stadium crowd. And also we use them, obviously we use them for We Will Rock You as well at Madison Square Garden. So that's that's the sound of yeah, sort of 20,000 people doing a single hand clap that we could use th- throughout the film as well. What struck me about the film is how there's so many moving parts and you have all this material, Queen's music, that was going to be in the film right off the bat. So while you're in pre-production, I gather, you're already trying to figure out how that music is going to be used while you're shooting and then how it's going to be that music is going to follow through the production process. So I thought we could rewind this early back into the process where you had to decide how the music and the dialogue were going to deal with these pre-recorded tracks and uh, just sort of cast your mind back to the sort of the earliest planning meetings around how you were going to do this job. Well, I first started on this film. It was it was a long time back. I'd actually been chatting with um, Graham King and Dennis O'Sullivan about the film a few years ago when they'd been looking to find their Freddy. And then it all went quiet. And then in 2016, um, they got in touch with me again. And Dennis O'Sullivan basically said, I think we've found our Freddy. And so they sent me a copy of the script. And on reading through it, there were many different uh, scenes and, and, and ideas that we discussed about how how those scenes could be created. But they were still working on the script at the time. And each time they worked on the script, some of these scenes changed, some of them, the way that they could, they could be done. Um, some of them were more obvious, being able to use Queen's music. Uh, others not so obvious, as in they probably there were no recordings that existed of what they were trying to explain in the script. So the next question came about how we would create... Um, or everything that was that was required to shoot the film, and the the, the question that quickly came up was h- how involved would Queen uh, uh, how how involved are they in the film? Would they like to be involved, or is is this the sort of thing where we'd have to start completely from scratch to to try and recreate all of these recordings? Um, it was obviously wonderful news to find out that they were completely supportive of the film and were and couldn't do enough for us, really. So we got in touch with our engineers and went down to the studio and they basically opened up the vault for us and they had a wealth of uh, material. They had full multi-tracks for everything and were more than happy for us to use whatever we needed for the film. That, that, was, that was a game changer at that moment, that when, when we realised that that was possible... Uh, all of a sudden, all the talk about who can play like Brian May, who can play like Roger Taylor, all, all those kind of discussions just disappeared immediately because then we thought, well, why would we ever want to try and recreate that when we have uh, perfectly recorded um, multitracks? But it went even further than that because even their live recordings from 1974, 1975, they, they'd actually uh, paid for some recordings themselves. And their early shows were all 16-track uh, recordings. So the drums, bass drum, snare drum, everything separated out. Freddie's vocals separated out, backing vocals separated out. So we had all this material that we could um, that we could tap into. But the main thing, obviously the biggest worry, because the, at the time, this time, the, the script did end with Live Aid, and it was clearly going to be a big scene uh, in the film. Okay, so how can we rec- recreate Live Aid? 
uh, we were sure at the time that there would probably just be a stereo mix of it somewhere on some uh, video because obviously it was broadcast uh, TV. And could we get our hands on this? But uh, through the Live Aid Trust, they did actually own a recording, um, a multi-track recording of the uh, of the event, which, as we found out later, the engineers were told uh, that they shouldn't record it. And nobody was going to be recorded at that concert. But it was actually a producer, one of uh, one of the BBC producers, and I, I need to find his name. I, his name escapes me. It's Jeff, Jeff something, isn't it? Jeff Griffin. Yes, Thank- that's it. Yes. <laughs> and and he surreptitiously recorded their set on a multi-track recorder in his BBC truck, and so it's thanks to this guy that we actually had the full multi-track of of Live Aid as well. Once we realized we had that, then again, that, that was a huge relief because we knew that uh, we really did have uh, a lot of things that we needed for the film. There were a few other scenes that where it obviously didn't exist. This is where myself and Nina were talking a lot about that is if we're going to use uh, Rami and Rami can sing. He's, he's a great singer. Do we use Freddie or do we, does Rami try and do his best Freddie or uh, how how do we do it? Uh, we realise that it's probably better for for the scenes that don't exist. Is that if we have another voice that sounds like the Freddie Mercury that we already have, the original Freddie Mercury. So we ended up going to a sort of Freddie Mercury sound alike um, for those scenes. A guy called Mark Martell, um, who sounds incredibly like Freddie Mercury. You can almost do the test with people to say, is this Freddie or is this Mark? And, and they're so close, it's incredible. But then the worry was, if we have three people making up the lead character of this movie, how is that going to work? And for it to not bump in the slightest, tiniest bit, you, you don't want to be watching the film and for the for the vocal or the dialogue or any of these things to be sort of bumping and slightly jolt you out the movie to sort of think, hang on a minute, but there was a change there. Who who was that? So, so we had a lot of discussions, didn't we, Nina, about how yeah. the best way to achieve that. We did. We originally did tests up at Abbey Road with Rami, and we did like a showreel for Fox uh, to sort of illustrate how this concept was going to work, of, of how it would be Rami speaking, it would be Freddie singing, and then from that point on, we went into rehearsals. So we we sort of worked with them with the sort of uh, playback music and how we were going to actually record everything they did, all their vocal performances, but we we're going to play back. And we, we went through and put sort of lots of uh, clicks in for them to remind them where breaks are and guitar solos are and things like that. And, and endings, beginnings and endings to be able to really match those performances. They needed a lot of um, kind of warning beeps and clicks and things like that so they could choreograph the whole thing. It's kind of a unique challenge for a film where the music and the dialogue are so intertwined. That yeah, I mean they really were cuz you obviously you're going from Rami saying a line of dialogue directly into Freddie's voice coming out of his mouth or Mark Martell's depending on the scene. So it it was definitely a challenge to just make that one voice feel like one voice. I mean, it, it is three voices there, but to try and make it feel always like it was just one uh, cohesive voice coming out of Rami's face. 
<laughs> that makes sense uh, it took a lot of quite detailed editing work I used an awful lot of Freddie's original recordings but also we re-recorded him both at Abbey Road and at Goldcrest um, ADR Studios in London doing all sorts of sort of breaths and lip smacks and uh, going into the sung lines going into you know coming out of the spoken lines going into singing and it's all those little joining bits really that uh, help to sell this one voice coming out of him. Um, and hopefully we've been successful with it, but it was it was just a lot of very, very detailed editing work using breath and lip smack and different types of inhales and exhales and little gasps in between lines of the vocal and all those kinds of um, kinds of uh, mouth and vocal sounds really. Did you feel like you had enough takes to work with? Did they? give you a lot of takes of Rami? I've got plenty of takes from Rami. Yeah, I've got plenty of material from Rami for uh, of his uh, breathing and stuff, and, you know, from, from these recordings that we did um, in both those places and also, you know, from from all these on-set recordings. It was obviously, in terms of the takes, the where, where there was obviously only one take was for Freddie's vocal through Live Aid because it was Freddie singing Live Aid. <laughs> So I have a question about the uh, teeth, the appliance. Did was yeah. he able to speak clearly with those, or was there? Did they necessitate a lot of ADR? Uh, no, he was he was actually pretty clear with them. He, I know that Rami worked with those teeth for a long time. He he wore them day and night leading up to the shoot days and stuff so that he had got very very comfortable with having them in his mouth he wore them through all his adr sessions um i that know was my was next question them. so you had him wear them in adr as well eh? he had them in adr and he kept them in throughout the session it's not like he took them out between takes or anything um he was very comfortable with them in his mouth they, they were they were part of his freddy persona and he uh, just adopted them and uh, kept them in his mouth, I think, until it, they felt like they were part of him. I've so, heard of method acting before, but never method ADR. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the interaction with the editor in terms of trying to get takes that look realistic, sound realistic from cut to cut? Was there some massaging that went back and well, forth that, between you and them? That, yeah, yep. there was definitely, I mean, there was close relationship, wasn't there, John, between basically me, you, and John Ottman, the editor? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, and say, say, for example, Live Aid. I mean, we spent two weeks filming Live Aid. We spent more than a day on each song and then some, you know, uh, of the complete set together. So John had a huge amount of material to work with. And he spent a lot of time going through, you know, going through all of the takes from the sort of wides to, to the to the medium to close ups to really sort of find really find the best combination of all of them. Not not just Rami, of course, but uh, of um, Gwillem, who played Brian and uh, Joe, who's John Deacon and Ben, who's uh, Roger Taylor. Obviously, uh, the director changed on this film. So who were you guys reporting to and sending temp mixes to and such? It was a combination of, of John. Yeah, John, the picture editor, and the producers, uh, Graham King, Dennis O'Sullivan, and Fox, and, and also Queen, uh, Brian May and Roger Taylor. So there was already quite a number of people who 
you know, to, that we had to get through a sort of approval process. There was definitely no shortage of people to uh, to get <laughs> Never things. Is. Yeah, no, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So although although we didn't really have a director that much in post, um, then it, it yeah, we, there was definitely many approval processes to get through. So another interesting thing is uh, on your Oscar nomination. Congratulations again. Uh, normally. It's uh, sound effects editors are involved in the nominations for the Oscars for sound editing. But you, uh, I'm correct in that you, you were music supervisor and dialogue supervisor. So that's fairly unusual for the music supervisor to be nominated for an Oscar. And uh, I was just wondering how you guys, uh, how that came about. Well, um, I mean, obviously, uh, we both supervised all the sound in, in the movie. Yeah. We, we got people in to help with the effects um but but it it was all it was always a sort of a like a team discussion about how it was going to be i mean i actually started out doing sound effects i i assisted uh, randy tom from skywalk never heard of him never heard of him <laughs> <laughs> so i uh yeah i've i've uh, i've done i've done plenty of sound effects uh before um i was a sound effects editor on charlie and the chocolate factory the tim burton film oh cool uh so we we always knew uh, what one of the things that we did was uh, along the way uh, when, when we had some days booked up at Abbey Road and um, for all the studio scenes uh, the great thing with Abbey Road is that it's although it's an amazing studio uh, state of the art studio they also have a huge amount of old equipment like old tape recorders multi track recorders if you know everything that's all the best of everything is is all sort of stored up at Abbey Road so when we were at Abbey Road, we actually went and did uh, lots of recordings of multi-track recorders, tape spinning up, spinning down, uh, studio doors opening and closing, that the sound of those big doors with the, the, with the kind of suck the air and push the air in, in and out the room. Um, this is like an audio nerd's audio dream gig, right? <laughs> Holy moly. How was that? Freddy? Hiya. Can you go a bit higher? If I go any higher, only dogs will hear me. Try. Freddy's note, sorry. Oh, go on, roll the tape. Uh, overdub 24 of Fred's thing. How was that? And things like uh, when in the studio scene in Seven Seas of Rye, when when you get the wood blocks landing on the on the strings of the piano, the chunk on the piano. We we always discussed about how that it shouldn't sound terrible with the track. It should be musically good, but but also musically obvious that it's not part of the track. And so there was a bit of experimenting going on with the wood blocks hitting the piano strings as to which piano strings they should be. And they shouldn't be in exactly the same key, but in a key that works with the with the track. Uh, so all of those things and and the coins on the drums, uh, the um, uh, the, the the rice on the drums, the, things like that. Yeah, we we did we did we did sort of a lot of recordings. We also recorded again another thing that sort of bridges between music and sound is uh, the the pianos. We we sort of worldized all the pianos. We used about five different pianos. We managed to cart them all into Studio Three of Abbey Road, and we did a uh, like a, a piano foley session because they're um, they have a piano at Abbey Road. It was a clavinova, um, and so what we did was was we played the MIDI through it, but turned the piano off. 
Oh, cool. And, oh, cool. And so, so all you get is the keys going clunk, 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 clunk to the piano of, of the piano that we wanted to record on, which we could then add to the piano that we then recorded so that when we were playing the piano, uh, it, you actually had the foley of the piano as well, which we had mm. recorded separately on different mics. What we really wanted to try and achieve is, is that you were sat in the room in that room and obviously we, we had sort of room mics as well so as if you were sat really sat next to someone and you could hear the keys going down you could hear the pedal going down and all that so we mixed that with the actual piano recordings as well we, it gave us opportunity to do many many things like that obviously the whole studio side of it as well the um uh you know when they created bohemian rhapsody um Brian May, he played your your dialogue tracks back through his amplifier, didn't he, Nina? Yeah, he did. For those moments where Gwilym takes the guitar up and he's really like talking into it, it's shouting through the guitar pick. Yeah, it's yeah. great. When he's in the booth, uh, right. Brian played them back out, so we had a nice authentic sound for those things where he's going press right. the button, Freddie, and he's right. A lot of the complimentary commentary about this film is about the performance scenes. I found there were really a couple of really magic moments were the family get-togethers and uh, the post-concert meet-and-greet scenes. It felt very natural, but you're also like, oh, wait, I should be tuning in to all these little conversations because they do develop the story a little bit. Yeah, I... I particularly the birthday scene the family dinner we did quite a lot of work there we did we recorded quite a bit of ADR but we also trawled through all the outtakes um I mean there's a there's a great chemistry between the four actors who play our four band members anyway um and so you'd find lots of little gems actually listening through all the set recordings of of interactions that they'd had little things they'd said to each other and they're all they're all also very good at ad libbing and thinking of stuff when they were doing a bit of background conversation in ADR as well. Hello, just a moment. Freddie Mercury, phone call. Quite like the sound of that. Freddie tells me that yes, you're some sort of a scientist. Well, astrophysics, actually. Oh. Yeah. My father would have preferred it. When? That's very clever. He's a dentist. Dentist? I was never a dentist. That's He's a, a dentist. He's a dentist. <laughs> I see. That's also quite clever, actually. <laughs> what are you doing later? Homework. <clears throat> Just making conversation. What kind of music was he listening to? Back in those days, there was a musician I am. That's the problem. My God, give it a bit of like us, you know. Very good. I have an announcement. I mean, it felt to me very much like Gosford Park, which I worked on many years ago. It, it's a, a similar kind of thing where you're you're keeping track of all these different conversations and you hear tiny snippets, but you hopefully just hear enough that it that it, it gives you an understanding or piques your interest or gives you a little laugh um, and, and just keeps it a kind of lively family scene, but without making it feel contrived make it still feel like that these are real conversations that are happening and you just happen to be catching little parts of them yeah I think like one of the reasons why people are in bands is because they just want to take the piss out of their friends constantly it's like one of the great joys of being in a band <laughs> being surrounded yeah. by these guys and you just joke around all the time and you're right like the 
actors who played the other members of Queen, I thought were just the most natural, genuine. Yeah, they did amazing. That guy was Brian May, as far as I was concerned. I was yeah, like, that's He's more, more Brian than Brian at times. <laughs> yeah. Even, <laughs> even Brian says that. Yeah. <laughs> So quickly, Nina, just one last thing about the dialogue. In this, there was a couple scenes, uh, in particular the proposal scene, uh, where the dialogue is being spoken so quietly. And yeah. I was just wondering how how clean was the production dialogue from that, and how much work did you have to put into all that super quiet talking? I mean, Lucy in particular can speak quite quietly. The, the recordings were good. John Casale did a great job um, recording everything on set. And we didn't use too much ADR, to be honest, in the final movie. We we shot certain things for safety, particularly some of that quiet stuff. Uh, but we would use quite a lot of combinations of things. We'd, we'd clean stuff up with RX. Um, we always use it in a very editorial way rather than a kind of one-size-fits-all um, by just basically cutting little bits and pieces and trying to boost certain syllables. Um, we'd use tiny bits of ADR just so that other other syllables might be clearer um, so that the end result is a line where you've just got enough mods in there to hear what someone's saying even when they're speaking terribly quietly. Um, um, and then obviously Paul Massey did a great job mixing it as well. So we ended up with the best result really, I think. Yeah, it worked out really well. I want to thank you both for sitting down and talking to us today. And uh, good luck with uh, all your upcoming award shows that you get to travel to and everything. It's going to be awesome for you guys. Thank you very much. It's been really great fun talking to you. Excellent. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.